Ladies and gentlemen, the folks at Bioptimizers have done it again. They've just released their new and improved formula for Magnesium Breakthrough, the most powerful magnesium supplement on the market today. This product was already amazing, but Bioptimizers has continued to research and improve it. And this new fourth generation formula means Magnesium Breakthrough is now even more potent and effective for reducing stress, improving sleep, and boosting energy levels. And if you've already taken Magnesium Breakthrough, you'll want to try the new formula as soon as you can because it now includes cofactors like B6 and manganese that help with the absorption of magnesium. And if you've never tried Magnesium Breakthrough before, now is the perfect time to try it. And here's why. For the deepest healing of many health problems, Dr. Mark Circus says there is going to be only one answer, and that answer is magnesium. And why does he say that? Well, there's two very important reasons. First, magnesium is involved in 80% of the body's metabolic reactions. And second, about 75% of people are not getting enough magnesium. This is a much bigger problem than most people think because when you don't get enough magnesium, you suffer from poor sleep, low energy, and even higher stress levels. And in every bottle of magnesium breakthrough, you'll get seven unique forms of organic full spectrum magnesium, which can dramatically improve your health. It can help you sleep longer and deeper, help you reduce stress levels and feel more calm. It'll give you abundant all day energy to win at life. And because it supports mental awareness, magnesium breakthrough can help you to finally feel like yourself again. Simply taking two capsules before you go to bed and you'll be amazed by the improvements in your mood and energy levels and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. You'll feel refreshed like new. And for an exclusive offer for my listeners, you can go to magbreakthrough.com slash undress and use code undress, A-N-D-R-E-S during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. Oh, and one last thing, if you want your loved ones to be healthier, consider giving them the gift of Magnesium Breakthrough for Mother's Day, Father's Day, or even a, a spring birthday. Again, that special link is magbreakthrough.com slash undress. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash undress. One more time, magbreakthrough.com slash undress, A-N-D-R-E-S. Use code undress during checkout. Save 10% and get free shipping. And that's all for now, folks. Have an amazing rest of your day. Hope you enjoy some good sleep and some nice, calm energy with your magnesium. Kevin, welcome back to the show. It was a pleasure to have you just a couple of weeks back to do some myth busting and to engage in some nice scientific discourse, you know, amongst scientific influencers. Always nice to try and do the research justice. We'll make it accessible, make it fun and entertaining for your average citizen scientist. So on behalf of my audience and all these wonderful citizen scientists, welcome back to the Know Your Physio podcast. Thanks for having me, Andres. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Awesome. So Kevin, tell us what are you currently excited about in the health and fitness space? Actually, wait, maybe a better question is, who's pissing you off right now? <laughs> okay, that's a better question, actually. <laughs> well, honestly, at this point, it's a weird thing. I'll be just like candid. Like At this point, I'm focusing more on like not what's pissing me off, but more on like 
what people want to know more about and want to see debunked. So everybody really, really, really loves Huberman debunkings, like everybody. And so that's what I'm doing lately. And also, Pete talks about a bunch of really important issues. So one thing he talked about is salt. He has this episode from March that I'm working on that I'm going to like take apart. And I'm excited about that. I'm also excited about LDL-lowering therapies and this idea of universal or near-universal or just like widespread reduction of LDL cholesterol and whether or not that could be possible as a, a way of preventing cardiovascular disease similar to, you know, other preventive measures that people more and more these days seem to have mixed feelings about, like fluoridation of the water or like, we could even say smoking prevention or vaccination. So I wonder if the, you know, I can demonstrate that the risks and benefits are such that I'm sure I can, uh, that we have the data such that much more widespread prescription of these medications makes sense. And I think it does. And I think that might be the future. We just need to rethink the way we think about cardiovascular disease. We think about it in terms of there's a 10-year risk that people have. And so based on your 10-year risk, you either get prescribed these medications or don't. But that's actually kind of strange because cardiovascular disease starts in your 30s. Is this the Framingham risk score? Is that the 10-year risk? or am I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Framingham has a risk score, but there's like, you know, half a dozen different calculators that calculate your risk. And most of it's actually probably due to age. So the older you are, like just that's going to dominate the risk calculation. But yeah, this 10-year risk, but cardiovascular disease starts young. It doesn't start when you're 50 or 60. It starts when you're in your 30s or even your 20s. There's plaques, there's widespread plaques, and a lot of people quite a young age, and those develop over time into cardiovascular disease. And so if you reduced LDL cholesterol on a large scale in, say, almost everybody, uh, using interventions that have a really low risk of side effects, the risk and benefits, the trade-offs might be such that there's going to be more benefit than risk. And I'm not sure if that's the case on a universal basis. I'm going to actually do the calculations and put this together in a, a spreadsheet to like show exactly what the rate of risk and benefit, because we have all that data. We know it well enough, in my opinion. But then at least, at the very least, I think much more widespread prescription of these medications would cause much more benefit than risk. Even among like relatively low risk people, the benefit compared to the risk is really, really, the ratio is really, really high, suggesting that we could definitely broaden the prescription. Of course, this is a very controversial idea because people think, oh, well, you know, cholesterol is made in the body for a reason. So therefore, if you mess with cholesterol, you're going to mess with normal physiology. But you can say that about a bunch of things that don't make any sense. Like you can say that about blood glucose, but nobody's saying, oh, well, we shouldn't treat diabetes or pre-diabetes because glucose is essential for life. Or people don't say, you know, there's a whole bunch of different things that you could say are essential. Like inflammatory markers are essential for life. Yeah. Having inflammatory signaling is essential for life. If you don't have inflammatory signaling, I'm pretty sure you're going to die. Like maybe even not even going to make it out of infancy. You need a way to resolve infections and to heal wounds, et cetera. It's like a really important thing. So all of these things are essential for life. The question is, is like how much is optimal? And you know, these kinds of questions. So, so yeah, the question is, is like based on the data, how much is optimal? And we do have genetic studies looking at certain, okay, there's certain ways that you can reduce LDL cholesterol genetically. Like there's certain kinds of groups in which you can have it, in which there's like no side effects whatsoever. There's other ways, like it depends on the pathway, depends on the way that you do it. But 
in some pathways, there's no side effects whatsoever. So I'm wondering if we just manipulate those same pathways in people who don't have those genetic problems, if we can get the same benefits. And so that's something that fascinates me lately. Apart from Huberman, yeah, I don't hate Huberman. Just to be clear for the people tuning in, this is Andrew Huberman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andrew Huberman. I don't hate Andrew Huberman at all. I used to kind of get upset or I used to, I don't know, like when I first started my YouTube videos, I started making videos where I, I just said that he was terrible and all these other things. And I kind of do think he's kind of terrible, but like I'm not. It's not black and white. <laughs> I don't dislike him as a person. I just think this information's not great. But more than anything, I'm focusing on him just because like that's what people want. Like, people want to hear about him. People want to hear like, because he has like over a million followers on Instagram, a million followers on YouTube, and he's only been around for two years. He's going to be even much bigger. Like everybody's paying attention to him. I would say that his content going viral is no mistake. And I don't think it's just by chance. I mean, the guy's a wizard. Like we spoke about this in the last podcast. He's a wizard when it comes to his understanding of the human psyche and neuroscience to the point where I think he can just completely exploit it in a way <laughs> for, and become viral, you know? Yeah, I don't know how our conversation went last time. I think it's his personality. I think he's really focused, I think, in my opinion, he's focused for a long period of time on sort of tickling those buttons on the people around him. That's the way his personality is oriented. And he's just a masterful speaker and presenter. And yes, he does know what is going to make people love him. And he does that. And yeah, I mean, more power to him in that respect. I respect his skill in that regard. But so therefore, as a result of that, people want to hear, okay, is what this guy's saying real? Is it not? And then of course, like people love this whole, oh, Huberman's so compelling and he's so interesting. So you're critiquing him. Like that's, there's kind of this drama element. I don't like that element anymore. I'm like moving away from that because it doesn't suit me. And I don't like getting involved, like engaged on that level. I'm just trying to like really talk about what is good and bad about his stuff and then it'll help people and then it's building my platform and then it's also like he talks about so much stuff that's essential and that's important for human health that if you talk about the same stuff he talks about you're going to cover a large amount of material that's really important so i think it's just wins all around and it helps to build my social media profile to a greater extent than anything else so i'm going to keep doing it cool and then let's say you know going back to the cardiovascular disease risk to give you a personal example my mom and her side of the family, they have a history of high cholesterol, you know, so she has high, slightly high LDL cholesterol, otherwise extremely healthy. And I would say, you know, on my end, I do everything I can to optimize, to keep myself healthy, keep myself fit, to prevent disease. But how much of the genetic component is actually involved in cardiovascular disease risk if you're taking all the measures possible from an environmental health, nutrition, fitness perspective? Are you saying that in addition to all of the good stuff that you're doing, like what else is there that is bad that you can't control? Is that what you're saying? So let's say that you have a genetic risk factor for high LDL and therefore that's you know a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, but you're doing everything that you can control to normalize everything else. You know, so every other marker is normal. You know, you're healthy, very low visceral fat, everything else is normal except you have slightly high LDL. At that point, should you take medication or at that point, is there just really no point? I mean, are you still at an elevated risk, so to speak? So there's a really good podcast with Peter Atia and I think Alan Snyderman. He talks about risk and this is kind of affecting the way I think about this a little bit, but he mentions how you're either going to have a heart attack or you're not like in 10 years. Like if your risk is 15%, if it's 25%, if it's 30%, you don't know 
if you're going to have a heart attack based on that risk. So on average, on a population level, if you have higher LDL rather than lower LDL, your risk is higher. And it doesn't matter if everything else is optimized. There's a really good Twitter thread made by Deidre Tobias. She's a Harvard professor, an assistant professor. She's an epidemiologist. She's super smart and like I adore her work. She did this where she had controlled for HDL cholesterol, for all these other risk factors. And she just said, okay, if just LDL is increased, what's the increase in risk? And there's still a really substantial increase in risk. In the past, I've kind of downplayed LDL. I've thought it's like a modest risk factor. It's a really important risk factor. The higher it is, the worse off you are. So one of the other things to really consider here is even though you're optimizing these other risk factors, we don't know what all the sources of risk are, right? There could be genes, like rare genes that we don't even know because they're so rare, it's hard to detect their impact on cardiovascular disease risk on a population level. And so we don't know that, say, you might have it and that might increase your risk. Or there's rare protective genes and those might reduce risk. So there's people who have like super high LDL levels, their whole family has super high LDL levels or super high LP little a levels, really bad lipids. And yet, despite all of that, there's no history of cardiovascular disease in that family. Why? It's because all the available risk factors we have don't fully characterize your risk. So we don't fully understand everything that is going to affect your personal risk. That said, because of that, the more you reduce your LDL cholesterol, the lower your risk is, but you don't necessarily know if you didn't do that, whether or not you would end up having a heart attack. It's sort of just, it's a playing a game. It's like rolling dice. You don't really know. So all else equal, reducing LDL cholesterol is going to reduce your risk of having a heart attack or having these cardiovascular events. That's why I think it's a good thing. But the other aspect of it is I really don't think the side effects of these medications are bad. So statins are the worst, right? So statins probably have the worst side effects. They're the oldest medication they're the most nonspecific. They don't just affect cholesterol. They affect like thousands of processes in the body because of how they play around with like prenylation, these small GTPases. There's all sorts of other biology apart from cholesterol lowering that statins end up impacting because they reduce cholesterol synthesis and it's a little bit more nonspecific. So because of that, there's more side effects for statins. So there's stuff like muscle issues. And that's a lot more uncommon than people think. It's less than 5% of people or less than 10 or 5% of people have real muscle pain. The rate of reported muscle pain is much higher, but that's because of nocebo. People are expecting muscle pain, so they like trick themselves into believing they have muscle pain. And then rhabdomyolysis is a really rare side effect, but it does happen. There's potential for psychological effects, but again, these are really rare and it's very hard to detect them, but it's been shown through some sort of end of one crossover studies that definitely some people do have them. Like they'll have like suicidal thoughts, homicidal thoughts, but that's so, 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 so rare. But of these drugs, like statins are the worst though. Like they do have the highest rate of side effects. The side effects aren't great when you do end up having them and certain percentage of people do end up being statin tolerant. But there's actually multiple different sets of classes of LDL lowering medications that are coming out that have much better side effect profiles than statins. Now, I think statins are great. I take a statin. I'm taking a statin. I'm taking azetamibe. It's a bile acid. What is it? A bile acid reuptake inhibitor, something like that, or cholesterol reuptake inhibitor. I probably got that totally wrong. I probably just failed a medical school question, but it inhibits the uptake of cholesterol in the gut because you recycle cholesterol. It's part of your digestive processes. So you just don't take it back up. So I take that and I take a statin and I think it's great. I don't have any 
side effects from the statin at all. Like I feel great on statin. Like I'm building muscle, like I'm killing it in jujitsu and in wrestling. It's like, it's great. And my LDL cholesterol is like 30 to 40 milligrams per deciliter. So super low. Do I need it? I don't know. But like if I take it over the course of like the next 30 or 40 years, I'm like cutting my risk of cardiovascular disease by almost half, you know, like I think that's a pretty big deal, especially since like that's probably one of the biggest potential causes of death for me. Also, I don't sleep enough. There's all these other things I don't do perfectly in my own lifestyle that probably increase my risk of cardiovascular disease. Why not just take a medication that doesn't have any side effects and reduce the risks? And again, there's other medications that have even a better side effect profile than statins and also can dramatically reduce cholesterol. So I guess the answer to your question, yeah, you don't know. Like all else equal, if you reduce all your other risk factors, that's great, fantastic. It's going to help you out. But if you also, in addition, reduce your cholesterol on top of that, that's even better. And if you can do that without side effects, that's great. And there's a good chance you can do that without side effects. And so that's the message I'm trying to bring sometimes. So, And at what age should we consider taking something like cholesterol-lowering medication? My personal opinion, talk to your doctor. Like, I'm not prescribing anything to anybody. But I think, like, this is not according to the guidelines, by the way. Like, a lot of doctors and cardiologists would... Okay, before I answer the question, a lot of cardiologists and doctors would secretly like send me messages saying, yeah, that sounds right. This is good. Like a lot of people who are very smart, who are part of like even guidelines committees and stuff like that, they would all say, yeah, this makes sense what you're saying. But they can't say this in public because because we haven't done any long-term studies showing that this is the case. We just can extrapolate from the current data and the current data are so strong and it's really hard to understand why this wouldn't be true given the current data. But sticklers for this and people who are a little bit more conservative about the guidelines and about recommendations will still say, well, Kevin, we can't say this in public. My opinion is that we should start people by like 25, elevated cholesterol or not. I think we should get everybody below 60, maybe even below, you know, 50. LDL. Yeah, milligrams per deciliter. I think the data are overwhelming in this respect. If you can do it without side effects, that's great. I do want to, again, come up with like a chart, a sheet of, okay, if you have different risk factors, different levels of risk at you know a given age, what is going to be the relative risk benefit of taking a set and say starting at the age of 25? I want to like flesh that out mathematically because those data are available. That's my part two of my statins video. But I think that a really, really large proportion of people should take statins or should take some sort of cholesterol medication starting at the age of 25. And that I think, in my opinion, everybody should try that if their doctor will let them and then see if they have side effects. And if they don't have side effects, like talk to their doctor and try to stay on for the rest of their life. I don't see any problem doing that. I think that's what we should be doing. And I think something like that is probably the future of public health cardiology, if we want to call it something like that. I think that is going to be the future. So are you extrapolating this based off of the, let's say, lipid profiles of a population around that age? Yeah. So here's how I do it, like a few different ways. So first of all, we have long-term genetic studies showing exactly how much each reduction in LDL cholesterol affects risk. And here's the way that risk reduction works for LDL cholesterol and probably for a lot of different things in biology. It's a relative risk reduction. So say you have a 6% risk, overall risk. If you have an intervention that causes a relative risk reduction of 50%, then you're going to go from 6% to 3% risk. So in your case, or in the case of everybody who has a 6% risk, we can quantify exactly how many lives are going to be saved or how many heart attacks are going to be prevented. Because we know if we have a 50% reduction, we're going to get 
from 6 to 3%. Same thing goes for somebody with a 12%. If you have a 50% reduction risk, and this is the same reduction in LDL cholesterol as you would have with a person with 6% risk, the same reduction in LDL cholesterol also produces a 50% relative risk reduction. So you go from 12% to 6%. So we can quantify in that case exactly how many lives will be saved. So we know on the basis of how statin drugs work through dozens and dozens of randomized controlled trials, it results in a relative reduction of risk and not... So for each class of risk, we can predict exactly how much relative risk reduction that there's going to be. And therefore, we can predict exactly how much benefit there's going to be on average. Now, you take that part, the benefit part, we can predict the benefit part, and then you look at the risk part. Well, the risk part is simply the side effects over time. And those are very well characterized across different populations. And those are relatively consistent. Of course, if you have prediabetes, it might change a little bit for the diabetes calculus. But there are some caveats to that. But overall, we can also calculate that your risk of having X, Y, and Z different side effect is also a certain percentage or a certain number. Okay, so then you take your absolute benefit, your expected benefit based on your given amount of risk, you take the expected amount of risk of side effects, and then you look at the balance between the two. And that's how you'd make that decision. I think we can literally, I can literally take an Excel spreadsheet and do this. I can literally show, okay, if you take statin medications for this period of time, you reduce your LDL cholesterol by 50 milligrams per deciliter for this amount of time, then you're going to get this amount of benefit versus this amount of risk. And you do that for different risk profiles, different length of time, different amounts of magnitudes of LDL lowering. You could probably even make a calculator with this, and that would probably be the long-term thing that I want to end up doing is making a calculator where I could just allow people to plug it in. And then secretly behind the scenes, I'll have my cardiologist friends help me to build this. And then publicly, they can kind of like not say anything about it, or they can tell me I should be cautious. But there's so many people who are so sympathetic to this that I'm sure I'm going to have plenty of help to build something like this. And the reason I would want to build something like this is just because I want to promote this idea. And then I think it'll help people. I think it'll genuinely help people. If we believe the data, the randomized controlled trial data, if we believe it's not pharma just manipulating everything and lying to everybody, if we believe that it's real, and I believe it's real, then everything I've said is true. And we can also calculate and figure out exactly what the risk benefit profile will be for different people for doing LDL lowering outside of the traditional context that the guidelines would tell us that we need to do it. How much is Big Pharma paying you to make this calculator? <laughs> I'm just I'll release it for free. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll release it for free. I have other ways of monetizing. So it'll just like raise my profile and, you know, make people upset or happy and more people will use it. It'll just be public service. So it'll, you know, it'll help me make money indirectly. I think overall, it's an incredible idea. And I'd love to be able to really, you know, capitalize on this data from a health and wellness perspective and just really get people to prevent disease. One thing, though, is... You know, on behalf of myself and the young people tuning in, because I just turned 25, right? I personally don't like the idea of considering this kind of medication, you know, taking statins at this age. And there's a lot that I do. So like I live my life to prevent disease, you know what I mean? And to help others do the same. So what can be said about people in the US, the bulk of 25 year olds being at a significant risk enough so that they should consider cholesterol lower medication. Do you think from a zoomed out perspective that at 25 years old, we should be taking cholesterol reducing medication? I think I need to fully characterize the risk benefit profiles at different levels of baseline risk to have full confidence in that question. I do think that a really large proportion or a substantial proportion of 25 year olds 
would benefit from being on statin medications or LDL lowering medications for their entire lives. But in order to give you like the numbers of like, oh, should it be everybody or 50% or 25%? And then what about the 40 year old? What percentage of those? Like I would need to crunch those numbers first. And that's my next task. And that's the thing I'm going to be doing. But I know exactly what the numbers are going to end up being, but it's certainly going to be a much higher proportion of people. And look, yeah, I think it's going to be a substantial proportion of 25 year olds. Well, I agree with you. I think most 25-year-olds in this country are pretty unhealthy. You know, they're starting to work their full-time jobs and they haven't really worked on their habits because they've carried on some of the bad habits they took on in college. Like, I think most 25-year-olds, in fact, could use that medication. But what I'm asking you is more like philosophically, should 25-year-olds be taking, you know, cholesterol-reducing medication? Like you're saying like a healthy, fit 25-year-old? Like should a 25-year-old person... In general. In general... Like, I understand that there's a solution, right? Because statistically speaking, you can help a lot of people avoid disease and live longer. But at 25 years old, you think that people should feel good about taking it? Because if I imagine myself taking it, for example, I'd probably feel bad about myself in that I'd probably be like, man, like, I have to take medication. Like, I could have, you know, put more effort into my diet or into my fitness or into my sleep or my stress management. Like, now I have to take medication. And like, yeah, it's going to lower my absolute risk. But like now I'm like a medicated person, you know, it's like an identity that you take on. Yeah. I mean, but then again, like you do what exercise, you do good diet, you do like cold exposure, you do sauna. No, 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 absolutely. So why is that different than taking a medication? Like that's a weird thing. Why are you going and running on a treadmill or like lifting these weird shaped metal pieces of equipment? Like why am well, I Because doing Andrew Huberman told me to. Because Andrew Huberman <laughs> told you to. Yeah. Well, I should get him to tell you to lower your LDL cholesterol. I, don't have I can't imagine Andrew Huberman telling people. Well, again, you know, but I understand you're right. You know, it's true. It's all relative in that that's my form of medication. I do a lot of weird, crazy biohacking shit. Yeah, let me just say like the medication is just like one class of interventions that there's a lot of stigma associated with it, but it doesn't have to necessarily be that way. We don't have to associate medications with like a deficiency. We're taking it because we're doing something good for ourselves, right? It's like wearing a condom. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Sometimes, but <laughs> sometimes, I mean, I don't know, man. <laughs> no, but yeah, we do it because we're doing something good for ourselves, right? And if we just frame the medication, if like that's the kind of cultural messaging around it, it's like this, we're doing something good for ourselves, then maybe we can change the way we feel about it. That's how I feel about it, right? Personally, I'm like, I'm proud to take it. I'm proud to take it. I know that like other people are like, wait, what, bro? I'm like, come on, bro. I'm like, are you proud to take that? What the hell, man? I know like a lot of people probably feel that way, but like for me. No, but you have an intimate relationship with the data itself. You know, so you feel good about it because you're like, I've studied this, you know? Yeah. And I, I think do. I'm doing something good for myself. I'm not having any side effects. Like, and as far as there's no long-term side effects that are going to end up popping up that like I'm going to regret unless there's something we haven't characterized. Like there might be like tendinopathies and stuff like that, but the evidence for that is very weak. And so you just monitor that. But yeah, like I don't think something's going to pop up. And I think if it does, then I'll be able to get off the medications and there won't be any problem. Of course, there are risks, you know, but these risks are relatively small. And the reason we know they're relatively small is because this has been monitored for such a long time that if there are some rare side effects that are bad, the rate of these rare side effects is going to be smaller than the rate of the benefits. So so how should someone, let's say regardless of age, gender, any, you know, XYZ demographic, how can anyone find out if they're a good fit for this kind of medication and if they should start taking it? Like what are some signs that they absolutely should start taking it? 
Look, I'm not an absolute authority, so please don't go to your doctor and say, Kevin Bass, this medical student on Twitter, told me to take statins. Can you please prescribe me this? Here is the Excel spreadsheet that he wrote up. So this is science. Are you going to deny science, Dr. Frank? If you do that, I don't know what I'm going to do because a lot of people are going to hate me and I'm going to get in trouble. I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble. but like, So maybe what kind of questions should someone ask their doctor to identify, to best identify if they're... What I can say is I'm going to be working on this problem and people are going to be able to read this stuff and understand it and make their own choices according to it. But going to their doctor and talking about it, doctors are going to be so resistant to this stuff. Like most doctors are not going to want to help. Now, there's more liberal doctors who will. I think those are probably the minority. Most doctors are pretty big sticklers, which is a good thing. It's a good thing for us not to just handing out medications like candy. They're that way about everything. And most doctors are not keeping up to date, not on the literature. They're not thinking very deeply in the way that I'm thinking. So they're not going to be your best friend for this. But if I have a medical practice, you know, like a telehealth practice, I don't know, in a few years or five, six years, then I can help maybe. So listener from five or six years from now, if this is a five or six year old podcast, maybe I'm doing something like this, or you can also check and see if I've disavowed these views, but I'm just going to be providing the most up-to-date evidence for people and they can start thinking about it in their own way. And maybe they can find a doctor that might be able to help them in this respect. You know, maybe if this idea takes off and I'm as excited about it in a year as I am now, we can kind of put together a network of doctors who are open to more off-label medication prescriptions for LDL lowering medications. I do think this is the future. I think definitely a much, much larger percentage of people are going to be taking LDL-lowering medications in the next decade or two. I think that's definitely going to happen. The question is, is how that's going to happen. And I'm just providing some information for people and they're able to use it as they want. But please don't go to your doctor and cite me as an authority. This is just to inform you and just, you know, watch me over the next couple of years, Google me every once in a while and see where I am on it. And if I continue to get more into this, maybe we'll build up a network of doctors that people can start to look into for that. But I think LDL lowering medication is not the only thing. I think rapamycin is also another big one. So, so I was about to ask you actually about, I was going to say like this conversation reminds me of the Foreman and rapamycin conversation. So would you mind describing for the people tuning in the mechanisms of action and what these drugs are, how they work, and what the potential benefits are? Well, so metformin is recognized in action. There's always new mechanisms of action for metformin being proposed in the scientific literature. There's at least like four major ones. I know that it like, what is it? It activates AMP kinase. That's like the traditional molecular explanation. And by activating AMP kinase, it does something with the, it makes the cells want to take up more glucose. So you end up taking more glucose up into your liver. That makes your liver more insulin sensitive. And as a result, your glucose levels in the blood go down. And presumably it's also reducing glucose production because that's probably one of the main reasons that you have higher blood glucose levels. And so because it's doing that and that ends up affecting other pathways that have also been implicated in aging, maybe we're reducing cardiovascular disease risks or reduction in blood glucose, but also through these other mechanisms that might also reduce cancer growth and other sorts of things. So prevent cancer. It's very sexy among the you know longevity community right now. Yeah. The intervention testing program at the National Institute of Aging did like a bunch of studies, but like one really, really interesting study that they did on metformin was... They gave it to like hundreds of different mice. So there's, 
I think almost a thousand different mice in this study. So it's a really large study and very systematic, and they didn't find any benefit to metformin given over the course of a lifetime over to these mice. So I think metformin is probably a dud. If you have elevated blood sugar, like you have diabetes, you might take metformin. It might actually help you with your cardiovascular disease risk because it's reducing your your blood glucose and your blood glucose is probably going to cause cardiovascular disease. But in like a healthy person, man, I think metformin is probably dead. I think that tends to be the consensus among longevity researchers. If you think about Matt Caberline, who is at University of Washington, I would say he's really, really reliable in this space as far as longevity researchers are concerned. And a lot of people are not. And uh, Dr. Levine at Yale too. Morgan Levine. Morgana Levine. Yep. Is she anti-metformin? I had her on the podcast. Oh, unfortunately, the audio file was corrupted, so I, I have to have her back. But I asked her about rapamycin, metformin, and a few others, and she gave me the very, you know, prestigious scientific answer, like, yes, but, or maybe it can if, you know. So it's like, it wasn't like a yes or no. It was like, yeah, it can, but it was like very much, it wasn't conclusive. She's a great scientist. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so I think metformin is not going to be... It could be, but it's not going to be a leading candidate for aging so far. The evidence doesn't look that way based on these really rigorous studies that have been done. Yeah, there's other studies that have been done, but the most rigorous studies don't show a benefit. And these are genetically heterogeneous mice. It's not just because of the mice strain used. Rabamycin, on the other hand, shows a really consistent benefit. Even in those ITP program trials at the National Institute of Aging, it's just a really, really strong longevity benefit. So I think rabamycin might be maybe the leading candidate for a longevity drug. You can listen to like some of Peter Atia's podcast about dosing and stuff. But honestly, we don't have any idea how we should be dosing. Like honestly, people are just trying it. They don't really understand what we should be doing, but they're doing their best. And so currently the evidence for rapamycin does seem to indicate that eventually there's a really strong potential for it to be used on an intermittent basis, not like as a chronic drug, which will end up, you know, causing immunosuppression, but kind of as an intermittent basis, which actually might even strengthen immunity. But we just don't know the dosages yet, and we really need to do human studies. Would I take it if I had the money to take it? I'd probably like start playing around with it intermittently. What I'll say about that, though, as well, is the side effects for rapamycin are less severe than even for statins. So it's thought to be safer than even statins. So like, why not play with it? That's just my personal opinion. I'm not recommending people go out to do it. We know much less about this than we do about statins, but I think that's going to be a leading agent. I think, you know, if you have extra money to play around with and you have like a doctor who's really smart and who's interested in helping you do this, then you can play around with it. There's a significant amount of potential that it is an anti-aging drug that's going to be good. That's like, I guess this is probably not as good as Morgan's answer because she probably can give you all the nuances and caveats. I'm just telling you sort of like the general outlines of where the field is pointing at this time. I think Matt Caberline's great. And I actually need to get going. A student walked in, so. No worries. Kevin, thank you so much for taking us through some of the CVD research, some of the drugs, some of the stuff that you're excited about, some of the people that are pissing you off. And I look forward to having you back in the near future and making further conversation. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Sure. Thanks, Andres. I appreciated this a lot. And I'll be more than happy to continue talking with you about various different things in the future, for sure. Awesome. Hey, have a great class. See you later. So that's all for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. 
for all of the show notes, including clickable links to anything and everything that we discussed today, everything from discount codes to videos to research articles, books, tips, tricks, techniques, and of course, to learn more about the guest on today's episode, all you have to do is head to my website, andresprechel.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-S-P-R-E-S-C-H-E-L.com and go to podcasts. You can also leave your feedback, questions, and suggestions for future episodes, future guests, so on and so forth. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you on the next one. Have a lovely rest of your day. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.